Hello and welcome to Formosa News, I'm Ian Cavat. Today is the 74th anniversary of the 228 incident, the brutal crackdown of an anti-government uprising. President Tsai Ing-wen and Premier Susan Tsang attended a memorial service in Kaohsiung on Sunday. Tsai gave posthumous certificates of innocence to three victims of the 228 incident who were represented at the ceremony by their families. Three people, each a relative of a victim of the 228 incident, received a certificate exonerating the victims of wrongdoing. In the past, this ceremony was held each year at Taipei's 228 Peace Memorial Park. This year, for the first time, it unfolded in Kaohsiung. The Chaotou incident and the Kaohsiung incident were watershed events for Taiwan's road to democratization. Today, when we talk about 228, we must remember its lessons and not repeat the same mistakes. The 228 incident was not an isolated event that occurred in the spring of 1947. Later, there was the Qingxiang crackdown. White terror and authoritarianism cast a pall over daily life in Taiwan. These are the most painful memories of all of Taiwan's ethnic groups. Reflecting on Kaohsiung's painful past, Tsai said there were key lessons to be drawn. Only a democratic system can produce a self-disciplined government with the courage for self-reflection. To prevent tragedy from striking again, we must institutionalize human rights values into the DNA of our government system. That is an important goal for our campaign for transitional justice. Tsai said the country should reflect on and remember the pain of its history in order to cherish its hard-won democracy. At the ceremony, relatives of the massacre's victims urged Tsai to erase symbols of Taiwan's authoritarian past. How can there be any reason to continue to idolize that murderer? Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall should long have been converted for a different purpose. The bodies of Chiang Kai-shek and his son, buried in Dashi, should be moved to Shizhi District's Wuzhi Mountain Military Cemetery so that they can be at rest, so the ghosts of the father and son can no longer stoke partisan conflict. In the view of victims' families, Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall and the burial palace of the Chiangs are problems long left unresolved. Even with the passage of time, the loss of their loved ones casts a long shadow hard to forget. Kaohsiung is shaking free from its industrial past as it seeks to evolve into a smart city. Today, President Tsai Ing-wen announced a plan to build Taiwan's largest test ground for 5G, artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things right in the southern port city. The Innovation Center will be established over five years at the Asia New Bay area in Kaohsiung. President Tsai Ing-wen, Premier Su Zhenchang and Economics Minister Wang Meihua took a trip to Kaohsiung where they were joined by Kaohsiung Mayor Chen Qi Mai on an inspection of the city's Asian New Bay area. Through the hard work of central and local government teams, today we are officially launching this project at this innovation park. The plan's launch reflects our commitment to closing the development gap between southern Taiwan and the north. In order to attract companies to the area to spur Kaohsiung's development, the Kaohsiung government will provide over 400 million NT in financing at 0% interest. It's also offering rental subsidies. For the first two years, rent will be free, and in years three and four, businesses will receive a 40% discount. This discount will be adjusted to 20% in years five and six, but that's not all. Property taxes will be reduced, and subsidies for workers' wages will be provided. For five years, there will be a housing tax exemption of up to 2 million NT. 
We hope that we'll be able to lure back our youth working in the north so that they'll return to Kaohsiung. As for our subsidies for workers' salaries, these subsidies can be used for up to 200 people and cover 25% of their salaries. I pushed Mayor Chen so hard when he was vice premier that he'd always be begging for mercy. But I heard him say to others in private conversations that he was doing all this so that he'd be ready ahead of time to be Kaohsiung's mayor. We've connected upstream, midstream, and downstream supply chains, and we've raised 10 billion NT in angel investor funding. The Asian New Bay Area includes 10 city-owned plots and land from the old 205th Arsenal Munitions Factory. It's designed to transform an industrial area into a hub for trade, culture and recreation, and warehousing and distribution by harnessing 5G technology. It connects the city's music center, eSports arena, port terminal, exhibition center, and the Kaohsiung Software Technology Park as well as its second park, which is still in the planning stage. The Tsai administration's Great South Great Development Policy has its sights set on giving Kaohsiung a major makeover. Eleven businesses have stepped up to buy fruit from farmers following China's sudden ban on Taiwanese pineapples starting March 1st. The Council of Agriculture reports that so far the companies have committed to buying 6,600 metric tons of pineapples. But over at Taipei's traditional markets, local demand is weak for the yellow fruit. We spoke to a stall owner who said interest should pick up as pineapple season progresses. The fruit vendor touts his produce, but here at this traditional market in Taipei, pineapples are a hard sell. They're a little too sour for some people right now. There might be more customers next month, since the fruits will be sweeter then. Although business is lackluster, there are still a few shoppers out and about. They came after hearing of China's ban on Taiwan pineapples, and they're here to support local farmers. It's our own product, so of course we've got to come out and buy. Sometimes I get pineapples to make pineapple chicken. I'm looking to buy four or five. Pineapples are very delicious. Buy a pineapple, support Taiwan. Within a day of China's announcement, the Council of Agriculture received pineapple orders from 11 corporations, including Largan Precision and Emei. Altogether, they pre-ordered 6,600 metric tons of the fruit. Takao Nozaki, a ramen vendor in Tainan, announced that he's buying 1,000 kilograms. Taiwan and Japan have helped each other many times in the past when we've encountered difficulties. In my small, small capacity as an individual Japanese person, I want to help Taiwan. Buy a bowl of ramen and get a pineapple for free. After hearing the news, legislator Guo Guowen of Tainan's Constituency 2 stepped up with his own pledge. We'll help make it a total of 3,110 kilograms of pineapple to honor the friendship that grew between Taiwan and Japan after the March 11th earthquake and tsunami, since March 11th is almost here. In the wake of China's import ban on Taiwan pineapples, purchase orders are pouring in from across Taiwan. But besides increasing domestic sales, officials also hope to widen markets overseas. We are the second largest production area. We still have a month's time to prepare because our crop will only start to reach the market at the end of March. We'll try our best to deal with the supply using additional processing or through our export channels by distributing it to several export destinations. Meanwhile, in Pingdong County, Taiwan's number one pineapple producer, 
the season's first diamond pineapples are already en route to Japan. This year, sales to Japan stand to double compared to last year. Last year, more than 300 metric tons were sold. This year, sales will grow to 600 metric tons. Fight for survival is on, with Pingdong becoming the first to launch exports. From now until late May, it will ship an average of one shipping container every week. As harvest season unfolds, central and local officials in the four production areas of the south will be working together to minimize China's impact on farmers. When Bitcoin launched in 2009, it sparked a frenzy of excitement among investors and led to a proliferation of other virtual currencies. It's also given rise to rampant fraud as scammers exploit people who are struggling to make sense of a constantly evolving financial technology. What should you look for when choosing an investment platform? What are some of the signs of fraud? Today in our special report, we delve into the world of virtual currencies and see what it's all about. We will be the biggest out there and we will write history. And the cryptocurrency community will have to rewrite philosophy. This isn't a concert. It's an event promoting a new type of virtual currency, the OneCoin. The event was hosted by Ruja Ignatova, also known as the Crypto Queen. She founded OneCoin in 2014, billing it as the next Bitcoin. Investors sunk more than 5 billion U.S. dollars in the currency, but in 2018, OneCoin was revealed to be a huge scam. Ignatova had said her currency would beat out Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency that launched in 2009, invented by a person or group of people by the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. Bitcoin is different from standard currencies in that there is no central bank that administers it. As a decentralized virtual currency, every user acts as a central bank. This so-called decentralized finance is finance that gets rid of financial intermediaries. Why do so many people support Bitcoin and utilize payment methods that use it? A very important reason is that international transactions come with high fees. But if we make the payment with digital currency, there are practically zero intermediary charges. How does Bitcoin turn its users into a central bank? Picture this. Mary wants to buy software from Jim and sends 500 NT to him. If that transaction could be recorded in an account book viewable by every user, it would have a high degree of reliability, removing the need for a central financial authority. The first digital currency to achieve this was Bitcoin. 2009, On January 3, 2009, a block was created. That's what's called the Genesis block. Satoshi Nakamoto mined the block, generating 50 bitcoins. The second block was generated on January 9th. The two blocks were linked up, creating a blockchain. What is a block? A block is basically an account book. Let's illustrate how the currency works. Satoshi Nakamoto has 50 bitcoins he created in his account. He buys a book from Mary and pays her 20 bitcoins. That transaction is recorded in the account book. If Mary then uses 10 bitcoins to buy a pen from Jim, that is also reflected on the account book. To keep track of the transactions, the ledger is stored in the computers with all three users, making it an open and transparent process. So then, who's filling in the records and verifying them? Who's preventing tampering? And who keeps all this in check? When you join Bitcoin online, your computer will automatically download a set of scripts. In theory, if you are willing, 
When those scripts are downloaded, they authorize you to verify Bitcoin movements on the blockchain. If you're willing to do this, you can look over the transactions in the previous 10 minutes and check whether the records on the blockchain are true and correct. The system will then generate new Bitcoins for you as a reward. When you verify other people's transactions, you get Bitcoins that were not originally in the system. That's why it is said these Bitcoins are mined and the people who keep the records straight are called miners. Xie Mingfeng is studying for a master's degree at National Taiwan University. He used to be a Bitcoin miner. I thought mining was lucrative. Back in 2017, some of my friends were saying they had gotten a lot of money through mining. At that time, the most famous case was a friend who said he invested some money in Ethereum when it launched in 2016. His investments grew 100-fold. He went from zero to 100. Since Bitcoin's launch, more than 10,000 other virtual currencies have emerged around the world. Even social media giant Facebook has proposed a cryptocurrency of its own, DM, which was originally announced under the name Libra. One or two years have gone by, and the development of Facebook's currency has been riddled with problems. Even some of the financial bodies that said they would join have backed out of their pledges. A major reason of this is the collective opposition from central banks in many countries. In most countries, the right to issue currency is restricted to the government. This restriction is a convenience for citizens as well as a means of state control. Modern monetary systems developed over a period of over a hundred years. I don't think they will be replaced by tech-based virtual currencies anytime soon. But modern monetary systems, under the efforts of the central banks of many countries, will eventually move toward digitization. Will they move in the direction of distributed ledgers and encryption? It depends on the circumstances of the time. But for now, most people know little about Bitcoin or virtual currencies and cryptocurrencies. That lack of knowledge can leave them vulnerable to scammers. Over the past two years, I have seen many scam rings using cryptocurrency as a lure. How do they lure people with that? They promise returns on investment or yields of 100, 200, 300 percent, or even 500 and 1,000 percent in just one year. If it really is that good, why wouldn't the scammers invest the money themselves? They're actually after your principle. Investing in virtual currencies is like investing in the stock market. You need to open an account on an exchange. But with so many options available on the internet, how can you avoid getting duped? First of all, know that you'll never need to transfer any assets to an account you don't know. If you're asked to do this, that's a very dangerous sign. The second thing you can do is to do some research on the exchange or instant trading platform you want to use. Check whether the money from retail investors is entrusted to a bank. Bitcoin's rise has made more people aware of virtual currencies. But in reality, currencies like Bitcoin have been part of everyday life for quite some time already. Examples include tokens used at arcades, the points given out at online shopping platforms, and the virtual money used in video games. And as time goes on, the line between virtual and physical currencies becomes increasingly blurry. In Taiwan, there are some firms that accept bitcoins as a form of payment, but they are still a minority. 
the trend seems that people are becoming more aware of digital currencies. For a long time now, virtual currencies have been hiding in plain sight. They are often used for discounts and promotions like frequent flyer miles, loyalty schemes, or even in the form of buy 10 coffees, get the 11th one free. 那過去我在政府部門服務的時候,就是一直聽到我們年輕的這些創業家或我們年輕的朋友就說,Back when I was in government, I kept hearing young entrepreneurs and friends urging us to set up an agency to deal with virtual currencies and cryptocurrencies. They said, this is already a trend, and if there's no regulatory body, it will be harder later on to establish good ground rules. They said they wanted a reasonable amount of oversight. Virtual currencies are rising in importance as a financial tool. As they grow and are adopted by more people, they'll only increasingly expand into our physical world. The world of fine art and antiques is a rarefied circle. Taiwan's number one female auctioneer came into the trade late after a switch from her first career in politics. Yeo Wenmei spoke to FTV about the similarities between the rapidly changing environment of a legislator's office and the auction floor. 他常常會用動物來代表他自己。Yo introduces us to this painting, explaining the brush style, hidden details, and even how the painter felt while working. Fine art is now her livelihood. As an auctioneer, she knows the auction process like the back of her hand, and her face is profoundly familiar to all in Taiwan's art market. During auctions, hand gestures are vital. If the bidding is over here with you, then I keep my hand pointing at you. Part of that is to help me remember that the bidding is there. The second purpose is to tell you I've got my eye on you. It's a kind of psychological tactic. I use my other hand to invite other bidders to make a bid. An auctioneer also needs beady eyes. I often say the special thing about an auctioneer is you need eyes like a hawk. You need to be able to judge from looking at the bidder's eyes if they're thinking about it, if they're going to bid, or if they're not interested. Yo has conducted over 60 auctions and sold over 50,000 items since 2013. Her success rate is over 97%, but auctions are her second career. Seven years ago, she was still working as deputy manager of the office of former lawmaker Apollo Chen. Often we had to find a solution to a voter's problem in the shortest time possible, or liaise with public agencies for them. That long period of experience helped me develop a skill for reading people and for picking out the crucial details. I think it was a very important experience. After more than 10 years in politics, Yo has a keen eye for fast-moving situations and that's never more vital than when an antique is going once, going twice, sold. <laughs> 